Well, you're, you're welcome to stay. If you're visiting with us, we have a meal afterwards over in the Fellowship Hall. We always have food over there, so you're more than welcome to join us over there. And uh, for those of you going through the membership class, you can grab something to eat and uh, spend a couple minutes over there, and then we'll head over to the classroom afterwards. Uh, yeah, Sunday school. Right, so we didn't... What? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, we're going to pray for the children. <laughs> Father, we uh, pray for our children. <laughs> pray that you would dismiss them at this time and bless their uh, teachers. And we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We're in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5. All the little children run down there. We've been in this uh, study dealing with the body of Christ, living blameless within the church is the title of this little mini-series here. We go through books of the Bible here, but uh, we, we subtitled it, Relationships Require Responsibility. Relationships Require Responsibility. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about ministering in a way that's loving and ministering in a way that's sensitive. For some of you, that comes very easy. For others of us, it's very difficult, and I include myself in that. But uh, we began this study, and we've looked at verses 12 to 15 as kind of a section here talking about this relationships requiring responsibility. And we said, first of all, in verses 12 to 13, it talks about the leader's responsibility toward the church, that they're to work hard, uh, that they're to have charge over the church, that they're to admonish the church which uh, means to kind of encourage them. Uh, also, we looked at the church's responsibility toward the leaders. So it's a two-way street. Um, the pastors toward the congregation, elders toward the congregation, congregation toward the elders and toward the pastors. And today we're going to show how the church's responsibility is one to another, the sheep ministering to the sheep. And we started this last week, and and. Uh, We'll just touch on a little bit about what we said last week, but I encourage you to listen to the, the message from last week. But today we're mainly going to be talking about ministering uh, sensitively and lovingly, sensitively and lovingly. And the, the main point here in our section really is that God will, will sanctify and inspire peace in his people, in his children, that they may be blameless until the coming of Christ. We're, we're called to be blameless here while we're living here on this earth. In verses 12 to 13, Paul shows that the local church and its leaders have these mutual responsibilities. And so we're, we're going to be looking at a text of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15, and it reads as follows, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, this is what we looked at last week, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so as we start this, this message, I just want to ask you one question. What's the answer? And I didn't even ask you a question. So how do you know what the answer is, right? The answer should be, what's the question? <laughs> you can't give an answer if you don't know the question. Um, 
and, and this relates to how we minister to people. Obviously, we can't give an answer unless we know what the question is. And guess what? We can't minister sensitively to people. We can't minister lovingly to people unless we first learn where they're at with the Lord. We have to understand what the question is. And sometimes we're guilty of just applying a blank template to everybody, all the same, and it doesn't work that way. The Apostle Paul encourages this kind of sensitivity in verse 14. He says, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. In other words, what's he telling us? He's telling us one size doesn't fit all. These are all different kinds of people within the church. And as we talked about last week, there's no church that's perfect. Because the church is made up of saved sinners. It's made up of people that it's a requirement to be imperfect to get into the church. You have to be a sinner to be in the church. You have to be someone who has recognized their own sinfulness before a holy God and cried out to God for his mercy and said, Lord, save me. I can't do this on my own. Save me, Lord. Save me from my sin." And his sacrifice on the cross, as we talked about, makes that possible. See, what Paul is trying to get us to see here, very simply, is it would be wrong for us to encourage the idle or the unruly. That would be wrong. He says, don't do that. Because they don't need that. He says, they need what? Admonishment. They need to be admonished. They need to be spoken to sometimes with... A stern word. And so when we, when we stop and we think about these different people who make up the church, it would be wrong for us to encourage the idle or the unruly, but it would also be insensitive to admonish the faint-hearted <laughs> who need a kind of encouragement. It would be hard-hearted to really scold the weak. And so this is what we want to look at today. Because the weak are people who just need to get back on their feet. And then Paul kind of concludes, he says, you know what, and you need patience through all this process. It can't happen overnight. It doesn't happen just because you see something wrong in somebody's life and you go and you talk to them, fix it, okay, done. I wash my hands of you, I'm free. It doesn't work that way. You have to continue that relationship. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Patience is needed. He says in verse 15, knowing that our fallen human tendency is to get even when we're wronged. He says in verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. In other words, to sum this all up, the Lord wants us to minister sensitively to one another and to live lovingly in the church and in the world. That's what he calls us to do. And unfortunately, the church is full of Christians who are not doing this. And so it's tarnishing the name of Christ. There's a basic assumption here behind Paul's exhortation to us. You can make this basic assumption that every Christian is a gifted believer. Every Christian is a, is a priest with a ministry to fulfill. That's what Paul's assuming. 
Why would he tell us to do this to one another if we, we can't do it? See, so many times people come into the church and they think, oh, that's the pastor's job, that's the elder's job. They, they do all, they take care of all that stuff. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's not our job. Our job is to teach the word of God, to edify the body, so the body then can minister to one another and go out and preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's what we're called to do. As a matter of fact, every passage that discusses spiritual gifts in the New Testament, whenever you look where the spiritual gifts are discussed, whether it's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, even in 1 Peter 4.10, every passage that discusses spiritual gifts emphasizes that each believer has at least one gift that he should be using for the edification and the building up of the body of Christ. In 1 Peter 4.10, for example, he says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. My question to this morning is, what's your gift? And how are you employing it in this church? You know, we're having a membership meeting after, or a membership uh, class, thank you. <laughs> The membership meetings in December, but we're having a membership class after, and, and so many times we'll, we'll give you some, some ways of discovering your spiritual gift if you don't know what it is, but the, the basic bottom line, the easiest way is just get involved. Start doing something. Got to show you if it's your gift or not. I mean, as a youth pastor for over 15 years, I remember people would volunteer, you know, oh, I'll help with junior high, I'll help with junior high. It took one or two meetings. For me to realize, you know what, this is not your gift. <laughs> I mean, they had people in the corner, they're, just, they're pulling their hair out, they're just going crazy, right? They couldn't deal with that age group. This is not your gift. Go somewhere else. Find something else to do. But each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. So if you know Christ, the Holy Spirit has given you a gift, and we're called to use it to serve the Lord. And while some are gifted more in practical service, every Christian should be focused on what we call the Great Commission, helping other people become disciples of Christ. That's what we're called to do. If the Lord has saved you, if the Lord has made a difference in your life, if the Lord has brought you out of darkness into the light and you're a born-again Christian, then you have something to give to somebody else. I don't care how old you are in Christ. Just go find somebody that doesn't know as much as you. That's all you're called to do. Whether it's the gospel to the lost or helping a new believer that's maybe not as mature as you in the Lord, help them learn to walk with the Lord. And so our, our text, it really focuses on how we can sensitively serve one another and live lovingly in both the church and the world. Let's look at our first point. The Lord wants us to minister sensitively to one another. And there's four basic areas here. And we went over the first one last week, so we're just going to spend a short time here. But it's to admonish the unruly or the idle. And he says that right at the top. He says, we urge you, brothers, he's talking to Christians, admonish the idle. We looked at this last week. MacArthur calls these people the wayward. I like that. The wayward. The, the word is used often in a military sense, and it's only used here in the New Testament. This is the only place this word is used. 
but it was used and it was referred to, uh, it would refer to a soldier who was out of step or was out of rank. He was doing something wrong. Somebody who's not doing their duty, who doesn't follow through in the responsibility. One translator, Moffat, he translates it loafer. <laughs> He's a loafer. Just along for the ride. Other people have called these people quitters, idle, lazy, invalid, apathetic. But it can also mean someone who doesn't do his duty, not just out of apathy, all right, but also someone who doesn't do his duty out of rebellion. And Paul had that in mind when he wrote to the the church of Thessalonica. There were people within the church that were kind of getting up a rebellious heart. I mean, if you've been in ministry at all for any period of time, you realize the people who do most of the criticizing are the people who fail to do their duty. They're the people who aren't involved. They're the people who are not doing a single thing, but they're quick to criticize everybody who is doing something. They basically concluded that they are doing God a favor by just showing up every Sunday, checking the box. I went to church. What do you want from me? God wants so much more from you. In their mind, they think that somehow their spiritual gift is coming to church. What's your spiritual gift? Well, I come to church. No, that's not a spiritual gift. That's not what it is. I mean, we should all just be impressed you showed up. Wow, you're here. I mean, don't even think about asking you to help serve somewhere within the body of Christ because people resist involvement. It's safer that way. They don't want to be beyond, get beyond this audience mentality. You come to church to watch something happen. You watch the music, and then you watch somebody get up and speak, and then you watch somebody do something else. That's not what church is about, beloved. These idle people come to watch and, and just criticize And it's basically because they're lazy. They're lazy. Their life is much too busy to be involved in a church. The people that want to sort of just hang around on the, on the fringe, just on the edge. They don't want to get involved too much. They don't want to have too much accountability. That gets a little uncomfortable. They really don't want to get into all that. They don't want to become part of something that's bigger than themselves. And that's really intolerable within the church of Christ. This should not be happening, but it happens all the time. And so how are we to deal with it? Well, he told us, admonish them. Admonish them. It's not rocket science. It's not some big formula here. There's no system. What's he mean? He means individual sheep. Go to the sheep that are hanging around on the fringes, not doing their duty, not using their gifts, not ministering, not serving, not supportive, not with the program, not going the direction everyone else is going. In other words, they're out of line, they're out of rank, they're disorderly, 
And what are we called to do? We're called to come alongside of them. Come alongside of them. Admonish them. Admonish a disobedient, because that's what it is. It's disobedience. God didn't ever just call you to come and watch. He called you to serve. Christ himself came as what? A servant. He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. What a glorious thing it would be that if members of our church, every time they step foot on this property, would ask the question, how can I serve somebody today? How can I serve somebody? What can I do? Is there something for me to do? This word admonish, A.T. Robertson said the, 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 the verb, we get nuthetic counseling from it. It means to come alongside and to put some sense into your head. Sometimes we need that. We need someone to come alongside of us and speak some common sense into our head. One writer says this, it's the idea of coming to someone who is following a path that ultimately ends in serious consequences and instructing him about the inevitability of those consequences. In other words, we're warning them. We're saying, great, you're part of our church, but what are you doing? I mean, we just come and we we see you sit, but that's all you do. Now, this does not have the idea of distance judging. It doesn't have the idea of pointing your finger at people. It doesn't have the idea of being critical from a vantage point of some superiority in your own life. Oh, look at me. I'm serving. Oh, why aren't you serving? No, that's not the idea here at all. So get that out of your head. That would be sinful. It has a sense of coming along closely and intimately with someone and showing someone the consequence of their conduct. That's really what it means. It's as simple as saying something like this. I've been watching you and I see a little indifference in you. You come to church now and then, but you don't come faithfully. You're not involved in a ministry. You're negative about certain things. You're critical about certain things. You're saying to that person, you know what, you realize, don't you, that if you continue down this path, there are consequences to this kind of behavior. And I don't think you want those consequences, and I know I don't want those consequences for you. So let's see how we can change. Let's see how maybe you can get involved instead of just being critical. Because church is not coming and sitting and staring at the back of someone's head. That's not what church is about. I mean, don't walk out of here this morning patting yourself on the back because you showed up. You don't get any brownie points for showing up. That means nothing to anybody. As a matter of fact, if you're coming just to show up, it'd probably just stay home. Because if you want to get real biblical, the Bible says you should be coming to serve. You should be coming out of concern for the body of Christ. Church is about being involved in people's lives, whether you like it or not. That's what church is about. And some of those people are troubled people. Some of those people have issues. We're not called to lock them in the basement. Don't let anybody see the people with issues. No, we're called to come alongside of them. The ones that are on the outside, testing the edges, living on the fringe, going day to day, in their spiritual walk without really seeing any progress whatsoever. 
Our goal as the body of Christ is to pull you in, not push you away. And if we love one another, we must prayerfully, gently try to warn those, try to correct those who are straying from the Lord. So that they don't get too far off that path. And if you missed the message, we went into it deeper last week, but you can listen to that message on the app. Secondly, not just admonish those folks, but encourage the faint-hearted Faint-hearted, he says that here clearly. He says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted literally, in the original language, means little soul. Little soul. It's two words. It's made up of a word that means small and soul. And the first group is kind of pushing the edges. You know, they're here and they're, they're pushing the edges of, of acceptable Christian behavior. But these faint-hearted people are very worried sheep. They're not on the edge at all. They're right in the middle. They're huddled together. They're just fearful of everything. They don't want to get near the edge. I mean, because in any church there are those who are bold. There are those who are courageous. There are those who are unafraid of persecution or difficulty. Man, they just go to battle every day for the Lord. They're willing to put their lives on the line for a noble cause or a principle, whatever it might be. But here, in contrast to those kind of people, you have somebody who's called faint-hearted. And they lack the boldness to accept a challenging, maybe new ministry. They lack the boldness of putting themselves in a maybe an uncomfortable circumstance in ministry. In general, faint-hearted people fear change. They fear the unknown. They want a, a ministry that's risk-free. Most likely, it doesn't involve any people, because whenever there's people involved in ministry, there's risks. <laughs> they want something that's traditional and safe, absolutely secure. They're not on the edge. They're not interested in the edge. They don't want to go near the edge. They're huddled in the middle, and they're paralyzed by fear and worry. And what does he say? He says, encourage them. Encourage the faint-hearted. It's, it's interesting because this word, it's only used here in the New Testament. This word for faint-hearted, small-souled. One way to understand what he means by this is to look at the opposite of faint-hearted. Someone who's not faint-hearted, someone who's bold. There's a word for that in the original language. It's megalopsychos. Mega, big, psychos, meaning soul, big-souled. Aristotle said, these people who are big-souled, they're the, the man who has achieved much, claimed much, and deserves much. What's interesting is when Gandhi wanted to identify himself, everybody thought he was so humble. Well, here's what the word he used. He used this word, Mahatma. It's, the, it's from the Sanskrit word that means mega, big. Thought much of himself, great-souled. 
And Paul says the opposite of this are these faint-hearted people who, unfortunately, what do they do? All they can do is huddle in the middle of the church, shivering in fear. Small soul. They hate change. They love tradition. They want to do it always the same way. They fear the unknown. They worry about everything. One writer says they see a manure pile in every meadow. (laughs) They lack courage. They don't want to dare to do anything that hasn't been done. They love what is safe. They only want to walk in a path that someone else has walked. They only want to repeat an act as if someone else has already done it. They want a a risk-free life with absolute security. And they're usually very melancholy in their spirit. They lack the strength to move out with the church and take challenges. They don't strike out with new ministries. They fear persecution. They don't like to communicate Christ because that involves tension in the relationships. They're afraid of opposition. They're usually sad, all the time worried, often very depressed in despair, they're discouraged. Well, in, in Thessalonica, they were dealing with two problems. They were dealing, first of all, with the persecution, and they were also dealing with this issue, this false teaching that was going around about the day of the Lord and how it already had happened. And so Paul says to them, you know what? I told you you were going to be persecuted. You should have already known this. I wrote you about it. Chapter 2, he goes into that. You've already, you should have expected this. I told you about it. And the other problem was that some of the people started believing the lie, the heresy that was being taught, that the day of the Lord had already come, and they missed it. So you had these faint-hearted people just going, whoa, whoa, it's me, man. I'm just going to huddle in the church and just shrivel up and die because there's no hope at all. The only hope we had was the day of the Lord, the rapture. But that's already happened, according to some. So we, we don't have any hope at all. Have you ever met a Christian like that? It seems hopeless. It's sad. It's sad. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4 exhorts, Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with anxious heart, the same mentality here, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, and the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. See, if you're one of God's children, you need to understand you're you're standing in Christ. You need to understand your sins are forgiven. This is a reason for joy. This is why further on he says rejoice always. Because you understand who you are in Christ. That your sins are paid for. That you've been given, gifted with the Holy Spirit and you've been given spiritual gifts that allow you to minister to others. Well, those with anxious hearts are little soul. They need encouragement. That word encouragement there, it's used only in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, and in John 11. And it refers to those who had come to counsel Mary and Martha in the death of their brother Lazarus. It means to literally speak alongside of someone, to offer them comfort, to offer them consolation. The confident need to become personal instructors and examples to the worried. That's what this is saying. We need to teach them. 
the biblical certainty that their Lord answers their prayers, that he secures their salvation, that he includes them in the final resurrection. It hadn't already passed. That he loves them eternally based on his love of them. And he sovereignly fulfills his will for their lives. We need to give them tender encouragement. They need to be encouraged in their suffering for Christ. By such reminders, the the joyful, confident believer, those who are more mature in Christ, can actually cheer up the joyless, can make a difference in those who are timid in spirit. Now, we shouldn't encourage self-pity, but we should communicate genuine sympathy with people. Sometimes the way to encourage a person who is discouraged due to a difficult trial in their life is sometimes not to say anything, but just to be with him or her. I learned this as a, as a chaplain. Sometimes you go to a horrific crime, and I mean, sometimes multiple people have died. That's not the time to preach a sermon. That's time just to serve them. Do you need something to eat? Do you need a glass of water? Do you need anything? I don't get on my soapbox and start preaching how, you know, God is sovereign in all this, and this will all work out for good for those who love the Lord. Do you love the Lord? No, that's not the time. That's not the place. I was reminded, Joseph Bailey, he wrote a book called The Last Thing We Talked About. And him and his wife had, on three separate occasions, had to bury their own children their sons. Not all at once. They didn't all die at once. Over, over a period of time, they died. I mean, that just shouldn't happen, right? I mean, parents are supposed to die first, usually. And he wrote something in this book, the last thing we talked about. He said this, I was sitting, torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me about God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true, but you know what? I was unmoved, except to wish he would go away. He finally did. He continues. He says, another one came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat there. He sat there with me for over an hour or more. And basically, he listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and he left. He said, I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. See, we want to be that person. And what Paul is saying here, back in in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 11 to 12, We can learn several things about his ministry. He says, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. First of all, this has to be something that's done personally. This isn't done for a text or an email or whatever. It's done personally. You notice he says, Paul encouraged each one in verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This requires knowing the person, knowing their personal needs, their particular needs. Paul uses the the imagery of a father with his children. 
If you're a parent, you know, and you have multiple children, you know they're all different. Some you may really have to, you know, take to the, the discipline thing and, and give them a couple of whacks on the rear end before they'll listen, right? And, and then they still don't listen. <laughs> and others, all you have to do is look at them sternly. And what do they do? They melt with tears. Our children are all different. You can't apply a simple template across the board. And see, to impact others for Christ, you have to know them. You have to relate to them personally. Secondly, the ministry should be done with a deep concern and love. Paul exhorted and encouraged as a, a father would his own child. I mean, every godly father cares about their children. When our children hurt, we hurt. When they feel down or dejected, we feel sad. When they're happy, we're happy. He wants God's best for each one. That's, that's what a, a person should be. Thirdly, the ministry should be done with the goal of maturity in Christ. Why are, you, why are you spending time with this person? The goal is not just to help the discouraged person feel better. I mean, you probably give something to drink that make them feel better. That's not going to solve anything, right? That's just going to make them forget what they were feeling bad about and then cause other complications in their life. All right? So here he says, you know what? The goal is to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is what Paul wanted these new Christians to do to these discouraged believers. So the goal is maturity in Christ. Fourthly, when appropriate, direct the discouraged person to the hope and promises of God's word. And when I say inappropriate or appropriately, I mean, you know, you don't go to you know, a, a, a death and, and start preaching at somebody. You have to do it appropriately. And here he exhorted, he encouraged, he implored each one as a father would his own children. And in verse 13 of chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. See, the word of God, we believe, is very powerful when it's used appropriately. It's very powerful. If you're talking to a believer who's discouraged because of trials, they may need to understand from the scriptures how God uses trials to build godliness into their lives. And maybe you can pull out an example from your own life to share with them. He may need certain key verses to, to memorize or to meditate upon or to study. You want him to understand that there's a, a God who is sovereign over these trials. Nothing takes God by surprise. We want him to understand that God will never leave him or for, forsake him. So admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. Thirdly, help the weak. Help the weak. Look at what he says. This could refer to those who are sick physically, but it could also be referring to those who are spiritually weak. The weak person is one who is new in the faith. Maybe they do okay when they're filled or in a room of believers, filled with believers. They're, they're doing fine in their Christian walk. Their problem is when they go to work and they, they have all their old non-Christian friends and they start hanging around them and boy, they're just weak. They give in. 
Maybe they haven't learned how to trust God and stand firm in the Lord against the crowd. And this word help literally means to hold firmly to, to cleave to. So many times this is not what we do in the church. We find someone who's weak and maybe fallen in sin, and what do we do? We push them away. That's not the way it should be. We should be drawing them closer, cleaving to them. Older, stronger Christians should not abandon a new believer who is weak. Just like an older brother would not abandon a younger brother if a bully was picking on him. I mean, we don't want to just shake our head and say, well, it's too bad. You know, they fell away. Oh, well, whatever. Let's move on. Nothing to see here. <laughs> no, we need to stay near them. We need to pester them. We need to hang on them. I mean, if you're swimming with one of your children and they're a small child and you know they're a weak swimmer, I don't think you're just going to go, okay, I'm going to go take two laps. Have fun. <laughs> no, you're going to cling to that child, right? And he's going to be clinging to you or she's going to be clinging to you. Why? Because they're weak. A weak Christian is one who is young in the faith and has not yet grown strong. The problem with most believers in the churches is they they equate maturity and strength in Christ with years old in Christ. So because they've been a Christian for 50 years, they think they're some big mature saint when really they're very weak. Some of them couldn't even explain the gospel if we asked them to. Sad, but it's true. And then you have other people who are are very new to the faith, and because of pride and arrogance, they think they're mature when they're not. So we need to really stop and reevaluate our own heart and our own life before God. Now note how Paul didn't condemn them. He accepted and he cared for those who were weak in the faith. Over in in Romans chapter 15, he says this in verses 1 to 3. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. In other words, they're going to fail. They're going to mess up. That's what we all do. And not to please ourselves. In verse 2, he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you you fell on me. See, Jesus was the good shepherd. He tenderly cares for his little lambs, and he protects them from predators. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In Isaiah 42, 3, and also in Matthew 12, 20, this verse is quoted. It says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Jesus helped and he held on to the weak. And so should his church. And then he sums it up here. Fourthly, he says, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Paul wraps up the whole package with patience. Because you know what? This, this, any ministry requires patience. Amen? I mean, if you're involved in ministry at all, you need a lot of patience. You need patience with people, you need patience with meetings, you need patience with processes that go on. It's just patience, patience, patience. And for someone who doesn't have a whole lot of patience, it can be very frustrating at times. And this is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, love is what? Patient. 
Love is kind. So guess what? When Steve's not being patient, he's not being loving. He's not being kind. If we aren't patient and kind, we aren't loving. If we're frustrated and we're angry all the time, guess what? We're not loving. It's very interesting. The Greek word for this word patience comes from two words, and it means this, long-tempered. Long-tempered. I don't know about you, but I don't have a long temper. I have a kind of short fuse. It's always burning, you know? And so you've got to be careful. If you're patient, you don't have a short fuse. You've come to understand James 1.20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You know, in a, in a family, when a little baby dirties his diaper, you know, you don't spank the child. I mean, that's what little babies are supposed to do. What do you do? You patiently clean them up, put on a new thing, and then it all happens all over again, right? And even when a more mature Christian does something to offend or, or wrong you, you realize, you know what, I'm a sinner too. God had to forgive me. I'm sure I can forgive my brother or my sister in Christ. And so what? You're patient. You're patient with them. Maybe you need to talk about it and get it straightened out, but you do it with patience. You do it with kindness, not with bitterness, not with anger. Paul exhorts us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, this. He says, so... As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of what? Compassion, of kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another. That doesn't even sound fun, right? But it's not. It's, it's a struggle sometimes. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And then he gives a very practical principle there at the end. He says, whoever has a complaint against anyone... Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. Wow. Boy, if we would just practice that one simple little principle in our lives and in our marriages, in our families and in our churches, it would go so much smoother. Why? Because God is patient with us. We should be patient with one another. We should minister sensitively to one another. And then Paul, the second point here is the Lord wants us to live lovingly in the church and in the world. And he points out some people here in verse 15, people that are doing evil within the church. You mean there are people in the church that do evil things? Definitely, all the time. Well, how do you handle them? He says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, that's what biblical love is. Biblical love always seeks the highest good for others. And Paul is saying that we should live lovingly, both in the church and outside the church. We don't see a lot of that today from Christians. Now, there are negative and positive sides to this. Negatively, love never retaliates for wrongs suffered. Notice he says, see that. It's directed to the entire church. If you see another Christian repaying someone evil for evil, 
You need to help him understand and to follow the Lord's way of not seeking vengeance. You shouldn't be doing that within the church. You shouldn't be doing that even within the world. But rather, you should be doing good toward that person. That goes against everything within ourselves, within our human nature. You know, that's like driving down the freeway or down, down El Camino and someone cuts you off and, you know, I don't know about your response, but mine's not one. Hey, God bless you. Have a wonderful day. That's not my response. I'm just being real open and honest with you. You know, usually it's like, are you going to pull in front of me, pal? You're going to see my bumper riding your bumper for a couple blocks just to let you know I'm here. Which is wrong. (laughs) It doesn't happen as much as it used to, but. And that's totally it's totally contrary to the way the the world thinks so what's the world say don't just get mad get what get even right you go get that guy you let him know that you saw what he did but that's not what the bible says the bible says be patient with everyone and don't get even but rather do good to those who wrong you i mean how opposite is that And you know what? To be very honest, I think most of the most painful wrongs that I've ever experienced in my life have not come from the world. They've come from the church, frankly. They've come from other believers. And I'm sure I've returned the favor to them as well. You kind of expect those kind of responses from the world But when it comes from the person claiming to be a Christian, from someone you thought you knew, someone you thought you trusted, wow, it really hurts. It really hurts. But even at such times, he says, don't trade insult for insult. Don't tell others in the church how how bad that person is or how much they hurt you. Don't sabotage the reputation of that person in the community because love does not repay evil for evil. So it raises some question here as we close. What about those of you who may be thinking, well, what about an eye for an eye? <laughs> tooth for a tooth, right? Well, if you look at those verses, they're radically used in the wrong way. Um, Does that principle say that we should do to the other person what he did to us? No. No, that's not what it's teaching. Originally, that principle was given as a judicial restraint in Israel so that angry, wounded people would not take vengeance into their own hands. They would leave it to the authorities. The court could apply a proportionate, just penalty. And over time, the Jewish scribes have distorted that principle into a license for personal revenge. That's why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, he addressed this in verse 38. He says it. He says, you have heard that it was said. Remember, he said this all the time to the religious leaders. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You heard that. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Wow. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... What do you do? You turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
says in verse 43, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. That's, that's radical stuff. That's a complete turning on the ear of, of what most people believe in the world today. Now, does that mean we're supposed to be doormats? No. Does that mean that we don't have a right to defend ourselves if we're attacked? No. Can we defend ourselves in court against a wrongful lawsuit? Definitely. By Jesus telling us to turn the other cheek, Jesus was not advocating here pacifism. He wasn't saying just, you know, let people do whatever they want to you. He wasn't advocating not defending yourself or your loved one if someone attacks you or them physically. I mean, the Bible upholds civil laws for the protection of law-abiding citizens. The Bible teaches that. It would not be loving to watch your loved ones be attacked and just sit there and go, well, Jesus said I can't do anything. No, that's not it at all. Rather, Jesus was telling us that we shouldn't be quick to fight for our rights or stand up for our honor when someone insults or offends us. A slap on the cheek, on the right cheek from a right-handed person was not a punch in the jaw, but it was a backhanded slap. It was an insult. Loss of honor. We saw that in one of those shows. I saw it on the news. Some guy got up and slapped the guy that was talking. You know, that was insulting. And that's what it was meant to be, apparently. And Jesus said, don't, don't retaliate when that happens to you. John Stott says this. He teaches not the irresponsibility which encourages evil, but the forbearance which renounces revenge. Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. Leon Morris suggests that the practice of non-retaliation by the early church may have been responsible in some measure for the impact of the early Christians that they made on men of their day. So negatively, You know what? We can't take this into our own hands. And then lastly, positively, love seeks the highest good of the others. That God would be glorified in their lives. So after commanding us not to repay evil for evil, Paul says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I think the NIV says, try to be kind. That's very weak. The Greek word, seek there, is also used to mean persecute. It means to go after something with strong intent and effort. You could paraphrase it this way. Rather than seek revenge, go after the other person's highest good with a vengeance. That's what we're called to do. That's why 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil by reviling or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Since the highest good for anyone 
is that he could come to a saving knowledge of faith in Christ Jesus and glorify God by living a a Christ-like life. Our response to wrongs against us should promote the other person's salvation or spiritual growth. We've got to get our eyes off ourselves. A couple of illustrations to close with here. Watchman Nee in his book, Sit, Walk, Stand, he tells of a Christian Chinese farmer who had a rice field. And the rice field was on a terraced hill, as they often build them. And he used a water wheel worked by a treadmill to pump water from a stream below to his irrigated field. And one night, his neighbor, who had two fields below him, made a breach in the Christian farmer's dike, and he drained off all of his water. And the Christian repaired the dike and pumped more water, but the same thing kept happening over and over again. And finally, after exhaustion, he just consulted and he prayed with some brothers in his church. And he came up with an idea. And the Christian farmer first pumped water for the two fields below him, for his neighbor. And then he pumped water into his own field. And he said after this, the water always stayed in his field. The neighbor was amazed at the Christian's action. And he began to ask why he did this. And after a while, he came to faith in Christ. Another story, there was a girl... A Muslim enemy soldier chased this Christian women, woman and her brother, and he cornered them, and he shot the brother, just killed him right there on the spot, and he left the sister go free after she had witnessed the murder of her brother. Later, it says that she was working in a military hospital as a nurse when the same soldier who had killed her brother was brought into her ward. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) He was critically wounded, and the slightest inattention to his needs would have meant certain death. And when the nurse realized this, a powerful temptation for vengeance raged in her mind. But as a Christian, a still small voice within her whispered kindness, kindness, And she yielded to the Spirit's prompting and patiently nursed this enemy back to health. And the soldier who recognized her asked her one day, why did you not let me die? She replied, I'm a follower of Jesus. And he instructs us to love your enemies. At this, the Muslim soldier was silent for a long time. Finally, he said, I never knew that anyone could have such a faith. If that's what it does, tell me more. I want it. See, our our intention is to serve people sensitively, lovingly, one another in the church. And that our loving behavior will change those even outside of the church who maybe wrong us at times. Romans 5.8, Paul writes this. He says, for while we were still weak, (laughs) we've all been there. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't instruct us to get cleaned up before we got saved. You didn't instruct us to do anything other than to simply trust in you, trust in the the sacrifice of your son on Calvary for our salvation. Lord, you take care of cleaning us up on your own. You make us into the kind of person that you desire us to be. I've never met a a truly born-again Christian who've come to me and said, you know what, I want my money back. No. When God transforms you and you realize your sins can be forgiven, and not only that, but you can continue to live for him in in a way that's honoring, and one day you can look forward to being in his presence and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We long for that. There's so much joy in those words. And the Christian life is not a life that's filled of, with condemnation. It's not a life that's filled with anger and joylessness. No, it's a, it's a life that is, is just overflowing with love and peace and joy. Patience and kindness and goodness. Who wouldn't want that? And maybe you're here this morning and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ. But you know he's calling you. You know you've heard the gospel. You know the fact that Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. And he invites you to put your faith, your trust in him for that forgiveness of sin that he promises you. And if you'll just be so daring to try that, to call out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save my heart. I I don't want to continue to live the way I'm living. It's frustrating. It's miserable. I'm carrying around this burden of sin that I can never be free of. Lord, if you can free me of this burden, Lord, I pray that you'll do it. Turn to Christ. Turn away from your sin. You turn to Christ and you, you trust in him for your salvation. He'll save you. He'll take you out of the darkness and into the light. You'll be a a brand new person in Christ. And you'll understand the joy and the happiness of living for him on a daily basis. He'll give you everything you need. He'll take care of you. Because he's a good God. He's a good father. He loves his children so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. And believers, I just pray that we would be more responsible in our dealings with people within the church. If we're not involved, if we're just warming a seat every week, I pray that you would shake us off that seat, help us to roll up our sleeves and to get busy for the Lord, serving you in some way, that we would, when our feet step on this property, the first thing in our mind would be, how are we going to serve today? Who are we going to serve today? Who are we going to encourage? Not just, what am I going to get out of this? Father, we pray all these things. We ask you to bless our food across the way as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one last.